We're going to be in a, a little text right here. We're going to actually start, even though we read through it last week, we're going to start in verse 20, and we're going to go all the way through verse 35. Um, and I think this is important because there's a theme that tends to be in a lot of Mark's teachings. He, he tends to teach in a very sandwich format from time to time. And what I mean is there'll be a story going on and then he'll seem to sandwich another tale into the middle of it. And it seems random the way it went, you know, like the story going to heal the child, but then the woman and the issue of blood, and then he goes back to healing the child, those sorts of things. This happens here too. Um, and a lot of times what actually is occurring in the way that, that Mark has put these together, remember the writers of the biblical books are good writers. They're not writing accidentally or, and they're not even just straight up reporters. I mean, the writers of the biblical books, especially the gospels, they had a purpose behind what they're doing. And so the fact that he's sandwiching these stories in like it is should speak something to us because there's other places in the gospels where they'll tell stories out of sequence um, Matthew will put things out one way and John will put them a little different and they seem out of sequence and people get really hung up on that. But, but the understanding is, is that each of the different gospel books was written for a specific purpose to get a specific point across or a specific understanding across. Um, and so there's a reason they've never had problem moving things around in some of these other areas. So it'd been really easy for them to tell a story. And then the, the one that happens in the middle, they could tell after or tell before, but they don't do that. The writer of Mark doesn't do that. And so this format we see somewhat regularly where there's a story and another one sandwiched in between. And what tends to be the case is the story in the middle holds the key for understanding what's going on on both ends. And that's the case for today, for this particular story. Um, so let's begin. We're going to first uh, look at verses 20 through 21. It says, and then he, speaking of Jesus, went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. Now, the Baptist churches I grew up in, when I read that first sentence, they would have gasped. The crowd was gathering. Yeah, yeah, he couldn't even eat. He what? He couldn't eat? Oh, like that's a big deal, right? In the Southern Baptist churches, no potlucks. But the crowd is just pressing on him. And remember the accounts that we've seen as we've been going through this book, the crowd is not like the, the, the paintings that we see, the gentle lambs circling him and it's, you know, butterflies flying around and everything's like perfect and serene. These crowds are borderline dangerous. They're pressing upon him. They're crushing down upon him. Um, it speaks about the fact that he gets in a boat at one point to avoid being crushed. Everyone's just like a mad rush clamoring to get him. And so this is going on again here. There's a crowd trying to get to him. But it says in verse 21, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. Now the word seize there, uh, to take charge of him or to arrest him. So here's the setting. Big crowd, once again, pressing down on Jesus. And Jesus' family is freaking out about this. Because, as it goes on to say, for they are saying he is out of his mind. Or we would say he's what? He's insane, he's crazy, he's a lunatic, he's outside the realm of normal thinking. So something's going wrong here. He's teaching all of these things, people are pressing upon him, he's in physical danger because the crowds are pressing on him. And so his family, we should give them credit for this, they are concerned about Jesus, they, they're worried about him, about his safety. Um, I mean, even to say in a Jewish culture that he could not eat seems kind of silly to us in a sense, but that's a big deal because even the meals in that culture were rituals even. 
And so you're, you got to understand, here's, Jesus's family is watching what's going on and, and it's understandable if they're missing some of these clues why they might think he was crazy. Because he seems to be shedding and bucking so many of their traditions, whether it be the Sabbath, cleansing rituals, things that they've all held to tightly as a community. Um, he's saying things, uh, and remember, first of all, the Jewish com- community has the highest reverence for God, uh, way more than we understand. I mean, remember, the Jewish people won't even speak God's name. That's how much they revere God. And so then Jesus is coming around and he's using phrases like the son of man, the son of God. And son of man is not just one, we think, oh, that's what Jesus called himself in the gospels. But it goes back before that. Um, That comes from Daniel chapter seven. And it's a messianic statement. Actually, it's a divine statement where in Daniel chapter seven, a divine being referred to as the son of man comes down from heaven to judge sin. And that can only be who? That's God, right? That is a clear statement. And the rabbis, the spiritual leaders of that day, they understand this. I mean, there's no misunderstanding what he's talking about when he makes such claims. So in a culture where they don't even refer to the name of God, for a man to come in and claim to be God and reference the Old Testament teachings as the reasons or as the evidence of who he is, is a massive deal, massive deal. So they're hearing him do this. Um, He claims to be the author of the Sabbath. Who's the author of the Sabbath? God's the author of the Sabbath, right? So he's claiming to be God. Um, He claims to be the forgiver of sin. Who's the forgiver of sin? The only person who can forgive sin is God because sin is against who? God. So he's making statements that our culture really fully doesn't understand exactly how dramatic they are in that culture. These are explosive headline on every news channel kind of statements that Jesus is making here. And so his family's watching this and then they're watching the physical situation that he's in with people pressing on him. He's not eating. He's got this group of yahoos following him around everywhere they go. Why are these fishermen tagging along like they are? What's up with that? And the tax collectors and they're seeing all this stuff go on. And it's understandable that they would start to think like we we have to save him. Isn't that interesting? We have to save him. And yet he came to do what? He came to save them. But that's what they believe because they think he's snapped. They think he's lost it. He's out of his mind. And so it says that they come to save him. Now, scripture only gives us three answers, three possibilities to the question, who is Jesus? Now, there's a lot of people that have a lot of different answers today, but scripture themselves only gives you room to believe one of three things based on biblical accounts of who Jesus Christ is. And like a good Baptist in my background, they're all beginning with L. Um, potlucks, I'm repping the Baptist today, apparently, it seems. But um, so number one is he's a lunatic. The scripture portrays people who genuinely believe that Jesus Christ was insane. He was a lunatic. His family being first and foremost amongst this. And this isn't just a one-time thing. This is going to continue. Um, The gospel of John speaks about the fact that his family didn't believe on him even at the end of his ministry, getting close to the very end of his ministry. So there was some severe concern by his brothers and by his family about even his own mental state. They believed that he was a lunatic. And so if you're going to say, how does the Bible portray Jesus? What are the possible beliefs? One of them is he's a lunatic. He's out of his mind. He's making claims that are not in touch with reality and he's delusional. 
In the same way that if someone was to come to us today and say, my name is Jesus Christ, we would probably begin to think in some of the same exact ways, would we not? And that's what we would believe. And so his family believes him to be a lunatic. Another option is that he's a liar. So if he's not crazy, if he's not insane, then another option that we see biblically is the belief that he's a liar. That he's just making this stuff up. That he's claiming to be someone he's not. And he's doing so maybe to build a following, maybe to get attention, maybe to try to topple government. Depends on what your angle is on that. But he's an absolute liar. And then the third option would be that he's Lord. And so today, now we have a couple of other explanations that have been added on to that in our day and age because um, we don't like things to be quite as black and white in society today. We want more freedom within belief systems. And so they've added some in, continuing with the L theme. There's those who believe that he's just a legend or he's the product of a legend. And what they would say is, look, Jesus... uh, We've blown him up to be way more than he ever was. And he's really a product of some tales and some stories and a good guy. But as the stories passed on and gained momentum over time, he became this larger than life figure. Um, Or they would just say he's just made up to begin with. He's literally a legend that was created um, in, in a time where people were looking to revolt against the status quo as things were in that day. They would say that he's just a legend. Um, Others would say that he's a loving leader. Two L's on that one. He's a loving leader. And this is one that we hear a lot today. That he and Gandhi and people like that are all kind of the same. Just good teachers who, who teach love and peace and tranquility. And they want people to get along. And he's just a good teacher who got kind of caught up in the wheels of history, if you will. Um, if you're familiar with people like Albert Schweitzer, he, he did the uh, uh, famous work years ago, The Quest for the Historical Jesus. This was his position, that Jesus is a good teacher who taught love and grace and understanding as a way to live life. But history, he kind of got caught in a bad time in history. His teachings were inflammatory to things that were going on in the systems at the time. And so he ended up being crushed, if you will, by the wheels of history, Um, which is really difficult to hold to when you look at the very claims of Jesus as son of man. And even the claims we're going to see in this very text, it doesn't seem like he's just some good teacher. He's making very specific, very intentional claims as to who he is. Um, And so all this idea of, oh, he was just a good guy that got caught up. There's no room for that to hold. And the idea that, well, it's not just that he's a good teacher, he's a legend, he's made up. Well, we're heading really fast now into 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 15. And he says, look, he was raised from the dead. He appeared to the apostles. And at one time he appeared before, before more than 500 people all at one time. When Paul's writing those things, he's referring to witnesses. And he's saying, this isn't, legends take time. And the gospel accounts and the letters to these churches that we see, these happen within one generation of the life of Jesus Christ himself. There's not enough time for those kind of legends. And even the writers themselves are telling us as if they expect us to go check these things out with some of the eyewitnesses that are there. So the belief that it was just some legend that passed on over time doesn't really hold water too. Now, 
I am not really um, a big guy when it comes to apologetics. Um, I, I appreciate them for what they are. I, I, I am very glad we have people that do it. It's not a big interest of mine necessarily. It's not something I'm really drawn to. I think one of the reasons is, is that I've actually seen um, times, and maybe you have too, where people have wielded apologetics. You guys know what apologetics is. It's the defense of scripture, um, the ability to defend the beliefs. And so uh, um, kind of the proving of things that we see, who Jesus is, who God is, does he really exist? Can we trust the Bible? Those sorts of things. And um, th- there's been times in my life where I've seen people wield apologetics as if they're some sort of club, just like whacking people over the head, like to win a debate, to win an argument. But I've never really seen me, maybe you have, and so I'm not, I'm not, not a blanket statement here, I'm just giving you my own experience. I've never seen anyone lose one of those sorts of arguments and, and that finish with repentance. Um, I've just, myself, I've never seen that argument where it proves the existence of God and results in repentance in the person that you actually win the argument over. I've never seen that myself. Um, Where I tend to believe apologetics has its greatest use is in building and strengthening the faith of those who are already believers. Um, So I think it's good to teach apologetics to some degree, even to our children when they go into college, because they're going to hear things from, from, from professors that are going to challenge even the very basics of our faith. And so not that we think our kids are going to learn apologetics, walk into the classroom and win the argument and everyone gets saved, though praise God that would be amazing, amen? But the idea being it will give them the fortitude to persevere, to understand lie and that sort of thing. Um, And so that tends to be my approach to apologetics. But there's certain things when you go through scriptures that it's just interesting to note that do add to our understanding or belief in the truth of the things that we're seeing. And, and some of this we see here in this very story. Like I mentioned before, um, to claim that it's a legend seems to be a, a kind of a silly argument because there's just not enough time to go by. It's hard to create a legend in the same time that people who knew him were alive. Because if you're lying, it's probably going to come out. Um, so that doesn't seem to, make, to, to happen. But, but the thing that is amazing to me as I watch this, that the scriptures are so different. If you were making this up, you would never do what we see the writer of Mark doing and what other writers of the Gospels and the New Testament letters do. And that is, they make the stars of the church. The people who would, if they were creating a legend, though these would be the people creating the legend. The people who are building the church and amassing the followers and fooling people if it was made up. The scriptures make those people look really bad. They just do. I mean, whether it be Peter, you know, upon this rock, I will build my church. Whether it be the writers of the scriptures, you look at men like Matthew, you look at Mark, you look at some of these people and some of the stories that we see, and they're littered with failures. And, and, you know, Jesus's brother James goes on to be one of the pillars of the early church. But right here, the gospel is portraying him as he, he thought Jesus was crazy. He didn't buy it at all. In fact, as he's going to go on to say in the Apostle John, or in, I'm sorry, in the uh, Gospel John, that he didn't even believe him late into his ministry. So if you were creating some sort of legend to build a following, to amass popularity for money, for deception, for manipulation, for power, for revolt, whatever the case may be, I don't think you would do that. I think what you would do is you would say, so we knew that Jesus had said he was going to rise again. So we were hanging out at the tomb just waiting And on that third day, when it opened, we said, yes, we knew it. But instead, the gospel portrays these guys that are like running for their lives, hiding. And and even more than that, 
Who are the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? They're women. In that culture, at that time, the testimony of a woman wasn't even allowed in court. So their word legally was worth nothing. So why would you put that in there if it didn't actually happen? Why would you create that? That would actually seem to be a reason that would tear down the authenticity of your story. Jesus is alive. How do you know? Some women saw, oh, whatever. That's really the attitude of the culture at that time. So why would you record such a thing unless it really happened? So the scriptures leave us with really only three choices when it all comes down to it. The choices with regards to the question, who is Jesus Christ, are either he's Lord, and that's who he's claiming to be, the Son of Man. He's going to go in this next section and talk about the strong man binding, and and you're going to see this is a very strong claim. So Jesus claims to be Lord. Jesus' family, they claim he's a lunatic. He's crazy. We've got to get him out of here. And that's the part of the story that's sandwiched. We're going to come back to that again at the back end of this story where his family again is trying to remove him from the situation. But the third option in the same story that's presented to us is that of the religious leaders who believed that he's a liar, that he's deceiving, that he's lying, he's making this up, whatever the case may be. And we see this beginning in verse 22. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub. Beelzebub is an Old Testament reference. It translates Lord of the Flies. It translates uh, Lord of the Dung Heap. It's a phrase meant to say or to speak to Satan himself. Okay? So he's saying, The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Satan. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and he said in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And this is a a really strong analogy here. Um, This is military language. He's speaking about military language, like that house, that kingdom will not be able to withstand the advance, the invasion, if you will, of the other. So he's using strong, figurative, military type language. A house divided against itself, against that kingdom cannot stand. And then in verse 26, he says, and if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. So what he's saying is, look, guys, just simple logic. If I'm empowered by Satan to kick demons out, that's defeating the cause of Satan. That just doesn't make sense. That just practically doesn't make sense. A kingdom divided against itself can't, can't stand. That doesn't make sense. But then he goes way further. And he says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So their claim is that Jesus is a liar. 
He first attacks the logic of it and says, it just doesn't make sense. You've watched me kick demons out. Then why would you say that I'm actually possessed by Satan in doing that? It's not something that's a hard stretch for us. I mean, even to this day, if we see things that just don't seem right, it's not that uncommon that that we would want to take the unexplainable and try to put it into that category. Just out of curiosity, anyone ever seen David Blaine on television? Anyone, the magician, David Blaine? Can we just, that dude's straight up weird, right? He's weird. And I've seen that guy do stuff where I'm like, I don't know, man. I don't know where that guy's getting his, I saw him do, you know, the pick a card thing, you know, the pick a card, any card, shuffle, shuffle, shuffle in front of a restaurant window. Do you guys see this? Takes the stack of cards that the guy wrote, the, the guy wrote his name on the card, shuffle, 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 stands in front of a restaurant window, takes the deck of cards and just, just throws them right against the window. And they just kind of explode. Cards go everywhere. Except the one card that the guy signed is stuck to the window. And you're like, whoa, but that's not it. Then he walks up to the glasses, go get the card. And the guy goes to grab the card and it's on the other side of the glass. <laughs> so I watched that and he's got that weird attitude and he kind of talks in that weird thing. And I just, I can't help it. I just start going, that dude's got the devil in him. I just, <laughs> I don't know how you do that. There's something creepy going on right there, right? Well, that's kind of what's happening right here. They're watching something that they can't explain that they can't do, something they should be able to do, but they're not operating with the authority of Christ. Something that is downplaying their importance in the community and putting a spotlight on someone else. And so their initial reaction is to try to tear that thing down. And Jesus responds by first attacking the logic of it. And then rather than trying to explain things away or or any of that kind of stuff, he hits it harder than they even had going. Like, it's like, you think this well, I'll go you one further. And he uses this verse 27 and says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then indeed he may plunder his house. Now it sounds like a parable to us. Sounds like, okay, so you can't break into a house and steal things unless you bind the man, the strong man, who's the head of the home, whatever, the protector there, then you can take whatever you want. But it's not just a parable. It's not just an analogy that Jesus is reaching back to. It's a messianic scripture that God had given in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 49, it says this. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken. And the prey of the tyrant shall be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. Now hear that again. This is really important. Because for us, we go, okay, oh, that relates to that. But they would have, the moment they hear him say these words, they know what he's talking about. So hear this verse, Isaiah 49, verse 24 and 25. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued for I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. Now, if you don't know that verse and Jesus says, you gotta bind up the strong man first if you're gonna take the plunder from inside the house, the first thought that comes to our mind would be a picture of theft, right? Robbery, breaking in, bind up the strong man and then take whatever you want. But he's referencing a passage in Isaiah that's not talking about theft, it's talking about what? Rescue, 
Big difference. He's speaking about rescue and he uses the same word for mighty in the other as the strong man in the other house. It's the same analogy. And he's saying, I'm here to rescue. I'm here to rescue. Man, those Hollywoodized pictures that we have of Jesus Christ just leading a group of sheep around gently and calm and his long blonde Swedish hair and his sash and all of those kinds of things. You know, they're beautiful and they're peaceful and, and, I, and I think they do help our kids relate. You know, as long as we don't move into idolatry, that's a whole other story. But um, they miss a really important truth about who Jesus is and that he is strong. He's really, really strong. Like, when we see wickedness, when we see evil, if you see a, a documentary or a movie that, that's about some sort of demonic, some ghosts, demons, whatever the thing might be, that there's a sense where because it's dark, and I'm glad that this is the case, but it, it puts fear in us. And that's a good thing. I hope that we would find those things uncomfortable to our flesh. But, but on the other end, we, we also, we kind of grow up in a familiarity with church and with Jesus and worship songs and he's safe and he's approachable. And, and sometimes I think we can forget and we can ascribe kind of this dark power fearfulness to the enemy and Jesus is being safe. But don't forget that Jesus came to absolutely crush Satan. If you go back to our biblical theology series, it's from the very beginning, Genesis chapter three. He came to crush him. And, and listen, that's not much to ask from such a mighty God. He's that much more powerful. He's that much stronger than the enemy. He's using mighty, powerful military terms, even with regards to battle strategy. Those are the kind of language he's using. And he's saying, I've come to bind up the strong man, speaking of Satan, the one who is the prince of this world, the scriptures say, that I might rescue those that are in bondage within his house. That's what he's saying. I've come to rescue. So, so Jesus isn't just the good guy teacher. He's like Navy SEAL. You understand? I mean, like, did you watch any of the movies that have been coming out lately and you see like our military and when they come in and do these rescue missions, um, Captain Phillips, for example, this is all a movie thing tonight that we're talking about. Captain Phillips, great movie. I, you know what I loved about the movie Captain Phillips? And I know they took a lot of liberties with stories, but it was a movie, so I'm fine with that. But what I loved is that they portrayed our military as having no fear, no doubt, we know what to do. These guys are a bunch of putzes in this boat out here and we're gonna take them down. So we'll just have them and they just manipulate the situation and they do their job and it's unbelievable the way it goes down. And, and I watched that movie in the theater and it made me feel like, like, yes, like proud to be an American. Like we're strong, you can't mess with us. You ever felt that way as you've seen whether a war movie or whatever the case may be, anyone, just me? Yeah, a lot of you, right, right? That should, be our, our, that should be our response when we read these sorts of things. To understand our God is strong, really strong. And he's saying, look, I'm not, I'm not a good guy teacher. I'm, I'm not just a nice guy who got caught up in the, the wheels of history and got crushed. I came to destroy Satan and rescue those whom he had taken captive. That's why I'm here. I'm a hero who has come to restore all things. That's what he's saying in this passage. 
that should give you like some, yeah, kind of like, you know what I mean? Like he's come to destroy Satan, the one you, I came to kick his tail. That's why I'm here and I'm gonna, it's assured. That's who Jesus is. He's the strong man. Now, this is discipleship. We're talking about the disciples and us being disciples and all this stuff. So imagine you're a, you're a disciple. You're watching the crowds. You're seeing how all this goes down. And here's these guys that are coming to Jesus and they're like, you're empowered by Satan. And he's like, you, oh, Satan, oh, you just wait. And he's letting them in on the plan and he's responding with authority to those who seem to speak with authority and he's putting them in their place and he seems totally inconquerable. And the crowds are following him everywhere. And he makes statements like, I have come to bind the strong man. So it then becomes understandable why the apostles of Jesus Christ would have had a really hard time three years later seeing Jesus as the one bound. That would have been hard for them to reconcile. Because in their mind, remember, and you see this throughout the Gospels, they're ready for revolution. They're ready for the Messiah is going to turn everything over right now. We're going to tear this up. Like Terry was talking about, why is things so hard? When does it get easy? The apostles thought, really soon. That's what they thought. And then the one who comes and says, I'm here to bind the strong man, suddenly they watch him bound. Well, the reason is, is that God has a little bit of a predicament. And that is, you hear, we talked about it a lot. Mercy and truth uphold the throne. So he's all about truth. Defeat evil. Hates sin. Hates wickedness. But mercy, he loves people. He loves those that he's created. So if you're God, and you came to wage war on Satan, because it's military language, you came to wage war on Satan, how do you wage war against Satan and completely defeat sin and yet somehow spare those who are complicit in sin's spread and practices in the world around? What do you do with that? How does God come and completely defeat sin and then I, who am his follower, am a sinner still? What does he do with that? That's why he was bound. Because as strong as Jesus is. The story even in Revelation where it talks about how he's gonna come back on that white horse and he's coming as the conquering king and you're reading those things and being amazed at the strength and might and power of our king. There is nowhere where he is portrayed with more strength than when he goes to the cross because to have the kind of strength that he does and willfully be bound and endure what he endures is immense strength. Not just power strength, but mental strength, spiritual strength, incredible strength to endure what he goes through. And in him willingly becoming weak so that the penalty of sin that we commit is placed upon his shoulders for us. There, there's no display of greater strength than that. That is where the glory of God shines the brightest. That he had the power to wipe all sin off the face of the earth, which would have included us. And instead, willingly subjected himself to what he went through for the sake of us. I mean, just think about it. I, mean, I was at the dentist just a couple of weeks ago. I hate 
going to the dentist. There's nothing worse than that for me. Metal and teeth and all that, it's awful. And I'm telling you, when I'm in the dentist and he's picking and scraping, those chairs are strong. Because if they weren't, I would have broke so many of them. Because I am pushing against that headrest with all my might, trying to get away from that thing. I cannot stand going to the dentist. Because if I had any slight little sliver of opportunity to slip out of there through the back of that chair when he's coming in, I would take it. And, and, and yet he didn't. He went through the likes of which we can't possibly fathom. And as D.A. Carson has said, it wasn't nails that held him to the cross. It was love. That he endured the cross because he loves us. He is strong. It's really strong. And then this understanding, Jesus came for a rescue mission to rescue those who are in bondage to sin, helps us understand the next section, which we have to hit fast. Verse 31. There's the blasphemy of the spirit parts in there. We might come back and touch that, but we just don't have time for that now. Give me grace. Verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. I want you guys to see what I believe the commentary, if you can, on this passage. It's in the book of Galatians chapter four. And I want you to turn there and see this with me because this is really, really important to know. His family thinks he's crazy. We've got to rescue him. He's gone nuts. He's going to get himself killed. He's going to starve. He's gone totally wacko. We've got to get him out of there. So they come to the crowded house. And the people say, your family's out there. Your mother, your brothers, your sisters are out there. And his response is, well, who's my brothers and sisters? It's, It's these. He's speaking about his followers, his disciples, those that are there with him. He's speaking about would be us. And the book of Galatians chapter four, beginning in verse three, really lays this out. Verse three says this. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Um, If your translation says elementary principles, a better word probably is actually spirits. It says here, speaking to believers in the church of Galatia. So he's speaking to Christians. In the same way that when we were children, We were enslaved to the elementary spirits of the world. We were enslaved, as Isaiah would say, to the strong man. Satan, the prince of this world, has us totally in slavery to sin, to the impulses of sin, to the impulses of selfishness, to the impulses of self-worship and of resistance of God. That's who we all are and all were. Paul says in Corinthians, he goes through the list. These will not inherit the kingdom of God. Adulterers, fornicators, homosexuality, all all of those things. Then he says, and so were most, or so were you before you were washed by the blood of Christ. So, So he's talking about us. We were enslaved to the spirits of the world. Verse four, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Why? so that we might receive adoptions as sons. The reason he's on the rescue mission, the reason he's there, his answer really to the scribes who are questioning him is, 
I'm here to bind the strong man so that I can adopt as my son, Jeff Hensley. That's why I'm here. That's the answer to that. What is a Christian? J.I. Packer, who might be the greatest Christian thinker who's alive today, he said this in answer to that question. What is a Christian? He said, I know of no richer answer than this. A Christian is one who has God as father. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. The truth of our adoption gives us the deepest insights the New Testament affords of the greatness of God's love. And it is summarized by this phrase, adoption through propitiation. That's why Jesus came, to adopt you, to adopt I, to adopt me, to adopt us. Like the purpose of all of it was that we might be adopted. Um, Garrison Keillor writes this story, maybe some of us can relate to it, uh, of growing up and always being the guy on the kickball field or on the baseball field who got picked last. Do you guys remember that special blend of torture when you were a kid? When they're going through the list, I'll take him and I'll take him and I'll take him. Well, listen to what he says about that particular event, playing baseball with some friends. They chose the popular ones first, And now the choice gets hard because we're all so much the same, not so hot. And then we're down to the last grudging choices. A slow kid for a catcher, that'll work. We need somebody to stick out in right field where no one hits it, except maybe two guys. And when they come to bat, the captain sends the poor right fielder over to left, which is a long walk. They choose the last ones two at a time. All right, you and you. Because it really makes no difference. And the remaining kids, the scrubs, the excess they deal for as handicaps. All right, if I take him, then you got to take that one. Sometimes I go as high as sixth. Usually lower. Just once I want them to pick me first. Just once I want them to say, him. I want him. The skinny kid with the glasses and the black socks. You, come with me but I've never been chosen with much enthusiasm. That's what he said. Guys, the cross of Jesus Christ proves to us that you have been chosen to be adopted as sons with tremendous enthusiasm. What he went through to make us his children, you can't do more than that. How could he prove more that he wanted us? How could he prove more how much he desires that we be with him? How could he choose us with any greater enthusiasm than to take all the strength and power that the world could possibly imagine and then some and allow it to be bound and allow it, allow himself to be saddled with our folly, with our sin, with our our guilt and go to the cross and endure what he did And then put up with the failures after the fact. Because let's face it, we're still struggling. Because he picked me because I want him with enthusiasm. The doctrine of the adoption, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It's something that we really ought to understand more. And then he goes on in verses 6 through 7 and he says, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. He didn't just set you free, he brought you in. And he's filled you with his Holy Spirit so that you're no longer slave. So when someone strikes out against you, that reaction that we had before to want to strike back in judgment, we're free from that because we see what Christ endured on our behalf. 
The understanding of the gospel has to be more than just Jesus died for our sins. It has to start with the fact that we're sinners because that's the part when we go, he went through that even though that I was in that state. Therefore, when people wrong me, I can show them grace too. It becomes really, a really, really important aspect of the gospel. Not just he died and rose again, but that we fell and that's why he died and that's why he rose again. To understand that God has chosen you as his son and as his daughter is an unbelievable truth that you have been chosen. Disciples are those who have been set free and have been, the master has been defeated. You've been set free from slavery and adopted in to the family of God with much enthusiasm. Why? I have no idea. That is a mystery we will explore for the rest of time the beauty of one so powerful who does not need us that he would put that much love and invest so much in us how can we not follow one who loves us so much how can we not be and relish the beauty of the fact that we are sons of the king that we are the sons and daughters of God as the scriptures say it's a beautiful thing amen will you stand let me pray for you God, thank you so much for the promises and the hope that's in your word. Thank you so much, Lord, that we have the approval of the only one who really matters. So may we be the kid who was chosen last. Maybe we're one who's been made fun of. Maybe we're one who's been scorned. Maybe people think we're crazy. Maybe people think we're liars. Maybe we've been rejected. Maybe life is hard. But we have been given the enthusiastic love and grace from really the only opinion that matters in the universe and that is yours. God, may we always be aware of our identity as your children. Lord, I thank you so much for the understanding of the adoption that you give us, Lord. And I pray, God, that you would help us to deepen in that understanding and by your spirit, give us the ability to walk in it. Lord, I'm just so humbled by that truth. I pray, Lord, for each person here as they go about their week, Lord, Yes, we're gonna struggle. Yes, life gets hard. Yes, sin's going to occur. Yes, we're going to fall. But our position in the family of God is secure because of the work that you did for us. And may we never lose that hope, that joy and that understanding that we are yours enthusiastically. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey guys, I was gonna say too, just in closing, um, my wife and I actually... My wife's in the kids' wing. I thought she'd be in here tonight. And she loves adoption teachings because that's kind of her heart. And we're actually right now in the process of going through the paperwork to, do, to adopt again, my wife and I, um, this time here through the foster care program in the United States. So we're going through all of that. And, and you know what's really cool is when you're adopting, and we learned this when we were doing the international adoption that, that failed in Africa, but one of the things they tell you is that when an adopted child is brought into the household, they warn you, be careful how you talk about them, be careful how you treat them. And in, in particular, you can have a family of like all Caucasian, all white people, and then one black child from Africa. And they'll say, just be careful, because people will say, oh, are these your kids? Or, or they'll ask different questions. And they say, be careful not to say things like, these are my children, and this is my adopted one. 
because it, it messes with um, uh, attachment issues and, and all those sorts of things. And so one of the things they tell you that's really important for the health and wel- welfare of the adopted kid is you always treat them exactly the same because once they're adopted, they are your child and it doesn't matter anymore where they came from. Is that a killer truth with regards to the scriptures as well? That's why the Bible says that we are now joint heirs with Jesus, the adopted sons of God. So, so the past has no more hold on us anymore. And he doesn't look at us any different. It's an amazing truth. How that plays out, I don't know. But you're walking out of this place, a child of God, full membership in full, standing in full, perfectly viewed child of God. And life will get easy in heaven. Amen? God bless you guys. Have a great week.